Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. As I recall, you're not a tennis player. I, I have done in my, in my youth, I've, uh, I, but I haven't been really fit enough to play since I was about 35. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I, I lived in Hawaii in 1980 and played a lot of tennis then. Our, our next guest might say he hasn't been fit enough to play since he was 36. <laughs> Although, uh, along the way, uh, he, in which he played professional tennis from 1986 to 2006, uh, he was often ranked number one. He won eight Grand Slams, also the gold medal in the Olympics uh, for tennis. And he's set a number of other tennis records, and he has a new autobiography that you've no doubt been hearing about. Mm -hmm. And he has stopped by to talk with us uh, here at this court. Um, <laughs> And the, uh, the book is called Open, an Autobiography, although the story of his collaboration uh, with his uh, co-writer is also an interesting and compelling part of the story. We please welcome Andre Agassi to West Coast Live. Thank you for coming by. Oh, it's good to be here. So here you are, back on tour again. I am, and, and rumor has it I can't, I can't have any salty language when I'm up here today. That, that really interferes with my communication skills. <laughs> the FCC are our line judges here today, our umpires. Uh, but uh, I, I was just struck in part that I mean, you, you spent so much of your professional life touring on the road, and now by writing this, this, this popular and compelling book, you're also now out on the road touring. Same thing, you know, waking up in hotel rooms, who knows where. I know, the last couple of weeks have been uh, pretty intense, brings back, uh, takes me down amnesia lane, you know. Uh, <laughs> but the good news is, is I'm not just uh, playing tennis for two hours, I'm kind of, I think, delivering something that can have real relevance um, to a lot of people who I'll never meet, so that's, that's the exciting part, that gives me a lot of, a lot of lift. The, the, one of the aspects of, of the book, that, and periodically throughout it, you mentioned the grace, is that when you find yourself helping someone, you find a sense of peace within yourself that you weren't finding within the tennis world. And you set up uh, the Andre Agassi Academy you know, for underprivileged children. I mean, all these, uh, you've changed your life in substantial directions. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's an understatement. I've been to some pretty, uh, pretty tough places in my life, but uh, when I was 27 years old, I kind of took ownership of, of my career and my life. Uh, it seems, uh, seems like I should have done it a lot earlier, but um, I didn't quite have the, the tools. You know, it's a, it was a busy world for me, you know, the world of the tennis tour. And I sat there one day at 141 in the world and thought to myself, you know, I could quit right now. I have everything I need, or I could regroup and start again and really try to do it for the first time, uh, make it a choice that I make. And, uh, and that's what I did. And, as a result of that decision, I started finding a lot of reasons to be inspired, to attach new meanings to these old tasks that I was kind of conditioned to doing. And, and one of the things that really helped me a lot was my charter school that I built. It's a K through 12 college preparatory academy because I felt like now I finally had a team I was playing for. I always thought I would be better on a team, you know, than an individual sport. And, and I found myself saying I'm, I'm playing for something that I'm connected to but is by far greater than I am. And, it allowed me to get out of my own way and start to really enjoy a game that, um, that uh, for many years I hated. 
Your, your father pushed you into the world of tennis, and there's a very moving scene in, in your book where you're actually out playing soccer, and you're having a terrific time enjoying that teamwork, and he comes up and pulls you out of the game and throws the soccer uniform back to the coach and forces you back onto the court. Yeah, he had a change of clothes for me, so that was yeah. good. Oh, yeah, you weren't, you weren't left standing there, a little boy naked. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but they were tennis clothes or something. <laughs> they they were, you know. I, my father wanted me to play soccer for my tennis. He thought it'd be good for my footwork. And one day I kind of had this injury. It was a, it was a legit injury. It was my uh, leg was bothering me and I couldn't practice. And my dad was kind of okay. Went on with his day. But then I realized I had a soccer match and I just love soccer. I mean, you know. And I looked at my mom. I was like, I mean, you think pops is gonna get upset if we go to the soccer game? And she says, Well, you know, Pa, he won't really need a reason to get upset. So. Um, <laughs> you know, why not, you know, you enjoy it, let's go do it. And so he finally finds out that I was injured not playing tennis and playing soccer, and God forbid I ever choose something over tennis, so that was the last day I played, uh, played soccer. There's a, there's a scene where uh, Stephanie Groff's uh, father and your father meet for this, the first time, and they're in their 60s, and, and, he's, and, and her father speaks broken German and English, or good German and broken English, and your father speaks Assyrian and, and English. And five, language, five languages, none of them well. None of them well. <laughs> and they get out this torture machine that they had to use called the Dragon. It was a, it was a homemade uh, tennis ball spitting machine. Yeah, fire-breathing dragon. My dad modified a ball machine so it can shoot about 110. Uh, 110 miles an hour, but you know, there's nothing quite like when your in-laws meet. You know, uh, uh, my dad was a—he's a kind of a fighter by nature. He was grew up fighting in the streets because of his mother used to make him wear hand-me-down girls' clothing to school for punishment. You know, and uh, yeah, pretty, pretty. She's a nasty lady. <sighs> Ooh, she lived with us for many summers, which weren't weren't uh, had a big wart on the never. Mind. Um, <laughs> And uh, my dad, uh, you know, my dad turned it into, into, into formal, formal fighting. He, he became a boxer and boxed in two Olympics, won two Golden Gloves. And uh, so he's kind of fought his whole life. And uh, uh, he has three sports he loves. He loves tennis, boxing, and, and soccer. And, and uh, Peter Graff, Steffi's father, uh, has three sports he loves, tennis, boxing, and soccer. And, and his, her, her dad boxed as well. So... When he came to town for the first time in Las Vegas, he didn't want to see Hoover Dam. He didn't want to go see any casinos. He wanted to see this dragon. He wanted to show me the ball machine that you were raised. So I'm driving in my dad's, and he doesn't speak good English. And we go, and my dad's really flattered by this opportunity to show off the dragon. He turns it on, and he wants me to go demonstrate. He's like, get over there and demonstrate how this machine works. I want to, I want to show Peter how this machine's better than you. And I said, well... Okay, so I take a racket and I go over there and he turns it on. And he's trying to talk over the guttural sounds that this thing's making and, and Peter's watching me play and, he's, and Peter stops listening to my dad, says to me, no, 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 this is the shot you've never learned, the shot that Steffi has. And he starts showing me what he taught Steffi, the backhand slice, you know. And so and it's not occurring to my dad that he's not listening to him, you know. So he was doing a couple things wrong, Peter. He was, first of all, I wasn't listening to my dad. Secondly, he was messing with his star pupil. You don't just do that. My dad taught me. So my dad comes to the other side of the court, and he starts, he pulls a racket from me, and he starts telling Peter, if Steffi had this shot, and he starts doing my 200, <laughs> she would have won, won 32 grand slams, right? 
And, and I, guess, I guess in this banter, now they both aren't understanding each other, yet they're communicating perfectly, you know? I mean, with phys physical, and so I guess my, my dad makes some sort of boxing analogy, because in tennis there's a lot of similarities, and, and Peter says, oh, boxing, uh, I'm a boxer. I, you know, I, I, think, I think I would have knocked you out. Right? So this is the first meeting of the in-laws. First, first, first time they met. Was, we, we've been together seven minutes. Um, and, so, and so Peter takes off his shirt and shows him what kind of shape he's in and, and shows him how he could keep him at bay with the jab, you know? So he starts going like this. So then my dad's talking about, well, how quick and how he fights. And so I, I'm, meanwhile, the dragon is firing the... And, and I'm just, I'm going like this, you know? And I'm, I'm looking back and, and I'm trying to figure out, are they really about to get into a fight? I mean, they're... Because I've seen my dad get in a lot of fights, you know, and, and sure enough, they are shadow boxing each other, coming within millimeters from, and I literally stop hitting balls. I, I actually, are, I'm, I'm between them like, like a bouncer in a, in a bar or something, you know, I'm keeping them apart, and, and all of a sudden, my dad starts, you know, swearing in, in, in Assyrian, he's in Peter swearing in German, I managed to get Peter's shirt back on and get him in the car and get him home. Only, only to walk in the door and have Steffi kind of go, well, how'd it go, you know? <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you after I fire up this margarita because the little tequila would hit the spot right now. The, the, uh, as I was reading this account of, of what you were doing, I, was, I was just had to sort of think back and, and wait a minute. You're flying around the world in jets, being in tournaments, running uh, an e exhausting, highly trained, physically demanding uh, life, and you, you're still in your early 20s. I, I mean, it was as astonishing to think back, and, and it was unusual to have a child placed in that position, yet your father, in many ways, did something that was very 19th century in a way, that uh, started, in other words, farming you out to be an apprentice, a tennis apprentice. Mm. You know, I don't care what you're gonna, I'm gonna send you to sea. I'm going to send you out to the cement court, and that's where you're going to be, and got you off to boarding schools. And so, I mean, you had a different upbringing than, than many, many kids your age have. Uh, no, no, no question about it, but he didn't send me out to boarding school. That would have been, that would have been heaven. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about that boarding school in, in, in yeah. Florida. That well, all right, the prison camp, I think yeah. you called it. It's a glorified prison camp is what it was, but, you know, and that, that was huge, that was a huge price, you know, and that's one of the things I talk about in the book, it's, you know, I think there's millions of people in this world that find themselves in a, in a life they didn't choose, that they just kind of wake up in, um, maybe even doing a job that they hate and having to figure out ways to connect and to, and to care about it, you know, but I, and, and I, I lived it, as a little boy, I didn't choose tennis, and when I got sent away to Florida, all of a sudden I'm a teenager 3,000 miles from home, uh, being raised without any adult real supervision. It's just a bunch of teenagers deciding the pecking order of each other. It's some, you know, I sort of refer to it as Lord of the Flies with four hands is really what it, what it was. And the, and the only way to really, the only way to really sort of avoid this environment was to succeed at it. There wasn't many choices. So, you know, I put my head down on the court. I tuned out of school and dropped out in ninth grade so I could practice longer and harder just to get out of it. And Finally, I, um, I, I succeeded, um, you know, I rebelled throughout those years, but I succeeded and I won, I won um, a, a ticket right into the world stage, which, which became another sort of prison for me because I didn't know who I was and here I was conducting my normal teenage rebellions on a world, uh, in front of the world and being labeled and being told who I was and, 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 and being asked to, to tell who, who I was when, 
you know, and it always kind of um, came with a lot of angst because reporters always wanted to do this. They want to stick a microphone in your face and they wanted to say, you know, please help me understand who you are. And it's like, and as the one subject I knew nothing about, I don't know who the heck I am. I've, I'm doing something I don't like to do and all of a sudden you care about it, you know, and so uh, I spent a, you know, and it came with a lot of successes, there's no question, but that's part of the confusion to it all. I didn't know what else to do. My family's been taken care of, uh, you know, with my, my success. And so I just felt like I had to do it and it felt very familiar to my whole life, which is, well, it's just, you don't, you don't have to like it. It's just, you have to do it. Um, but as you get older, you start to resent that even more and more and it starts to manifest itself different ways. And uh, I found myself going through a lot of uh, learning curves, but but eventually hitting rock bottom before before all that uh, turned around. But it is it is it is an odd thing to uh, be in your twenties and and um, be done with a career almost. Yeah. The uh, when you would have certain uh, achievements, uh, being named number one in the in the ATP uh, tennis rankings or winning a Grand Slam, sometimes. Uh, you describe yourself as feeling empty. And I thought back to your upbringing and realized that in many ways, you had been raised to sort of numb yourself to feelings. I mean, you're just sort of inured and just going straight ahead on this tennis path. And so it couldn't connect with you. And it wasn't until much later in your, in your tennis career could you actually begin to enjoy a victory. Yeah, I mean, losing always came with much more of a, losing felt much worse than winning felt good to me. You know, winning was expected. You know, losing was a crisis. It's just, you know, every shot I hit dead perfect as a child was expected. Every shot I missed was was a crisis. It's just the way it was. So I, 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 I didn't need my father's kind of rant anymore in my life because I was pretty good at it myself. I mean, I just, uh, I took I took over his rant and I was very hard on myself. And, and so losing came with this huge cost. Um, and and that's, that's tough, you know, when you're not connected to something and it has that kind of angst because there's no escaping it. You know, it's not like you can just go out there and make up for it with your performance because there's always tomorrow and always tomorrow. And, and if you're not connected to what it is you do, I mean, what, what, what are you doing in life? I mean, you'll never, you'll never be satisfied. And I was always introduced as the future number one player in the world. You know, that's how my father introduced me to everybody. And the good news is, is that's a powerful emotion for a young boy, you know, to have his father so proud but but it was always something I was going to achieve and when I achieved it I suppose you think that it's going to mean something you know and I was I was so disillusioned by by the reality that here it was I was supposed to do this my whole life I haven't liked this my whole life and I finally do it and so this is the big payoff and it just kind of left me more empty than than anything else um, um, you know it's we're all in a you know life is an interesting thing you know I always kind of make the analogy that you know we're all kind of swimming to Hawaii and none of us are gonna make it so what the hell are we really doing I mean if you're not connected <laughs> if you're not connected to what it is you're, you're doing if you're not have your reasons for, for, for your life on a daily basis I, I, I think as glamorous as it all seems uh, the truth is it, it's, it doesn't fulfill you and so uh, both you and, and your wife are champion tennis players what and, and have had the experiences of these kind of forced childhoods how are you how are you uh, raising your own children with that in mind well I think the first decision you make is to define success for your child and to define success for you as a parent I mean uh, if you if you answer that question wrong you will make many mistakes never realizing you're making mistakes you know so my father defines success pretty simply which is to 
be successful means being number one in the world. It means being rich. I mean, he's from the old country, as he calls it. He wanted the fastest route to the American dream. And there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That was his deal. But for me, you know, I define success for my children by, first of all, giving them the choices, um, expecting them to see through their commitments, uh, because it's when you pour yourself into something that I think you really discover who you are in its, in its, purest, in its purest form. And, when you, and if you, once you understand yourself, I think uh, it gives you a real ability to, to learn empathy, you know, to learn how to see life through other people's lens. And, and, you know, and, and, and peace is something you fight for every day. And if you're, if, you're, if you're lucky, you win most of those days. And so you know, I, I start with a whole different premise in my father. I, I, I mean, I, he's, he was a fiercely loyal man, which I think he has instilled in me. He's incredibly generous. He was, you know, our family was supported on tips in Vegas. He's working in the casinos. And he's very generous to other people. And, uh, um, you know, and, and, and he's a very disciplined, hardworking person. He came to America and not speaking any English, put himself through school raised four children, holding down two jobs most of his life. So, you know, there's a lot to, to that I feel like I have taken from him, but I do believe fundamentally um, I've, I've I'm taken a different approach towards it. It's about instilling values of a different kind, and, and, and along the way you had a number of, you described them as surrogate fathers. Uh, uh, Gil, your, uh, your coach and bodyguard, you also had Brad, who, who, who taught you how to play so-called ugly, not to be a perfectionist on the, on the court, and, and latterly, uh, Darren, who, who helped you uh, along the way. I mean, in each one of them, you sort of took on because it seemed to fill not only a professional need, but an emotional need, that here was, here was somebody who could help, help me understand that part of me that I didn't get growing up. Yeah, well, I've, Gil's my trainer, and I and people used to always ask if he's my bodyguard, and I always referred to him as my lifeguard. I mean, literally, he took care of my whole life. He was my surrogate father, and um, you know, has taught me so much. But I think we all kind of do that in life, or at least, or at least we all should do that. You know, I mean, I I didn't have a formal education, and I hated school, um, but yet I really loved learning, um, which took me a while to to understand. But uh, uh, but I learned from the people in my life. I gravitated towards people that had something I didn't have, people I could imitate, people I could learn from. And, you know, it, it was called an honorage for most of my career. You know, oh, there's Andre with his honorage and, and, and it was, they were just, they were my, they were my teachers, you know, and, um, and it was a, it was a school. It was a you school. also make the point that it was, it was like, it was the way you made tennis, which can be very lonely, a team sport. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, they counted on me as much as I counted on them in many respects. and. Um, a lot of times, you know, a lack of inspiration in my tennis led me to some pretty dark places. I needed, I needed inspiration to be out there because I'd never understood it or connected to it myself, not for a long time. But a lot of times these people in my life were my inspirations. And, uh, um, and, and it's important to, to, to do that. My wife uh, also, I mean, when I met her, it was, she became a, a huge, a huge teacher for me, you know, I gravitated towards her because of all the things she had that I didn't, that I, I envied, that I wanted, that I, I wanted to understand better, and um, and it's a, it's a, just it's a healthy way to go to surround yourself with the right people. One of the ways that you would often talk with your your friends and your colleagues to have intimate conversations, I was interested, was that you were you would be side by side in a parked car somewhere, that there was something about the comfort of being in a at night, often late into the early morning hours sitting there turning the car heater on or off, and, and that there seemed to be kind of an intimacy there. It was a private cocoon. Yeah. 
Yeah, I always thought better in cars for some reason, you know. I mean, I, driving was always, I could always, I don't know, maybe you didn't have to quite look at each other in a certain way or um, or my mind was distracted, you know. I, I, that's the way I kind of work. When I'm focused on something, it frees up a different part of my mind. It's the same way it is with cooking these days, you know. I kind of start, you know, I kind of do my best thinking when I'm, when I'm cooking or if I'm out running or if I'm out doing something, my part of my mind allows it really... I don't know, it's a, it's a form of meditation for me, but many of my uh, most significant moments with the people in my life happened, happened in cars. You're, you know, you're close to other people, but you're still alone. You know, you're connected to the world, but you're in your own space. There's just something I've always identified with, I've responded to. There's something that supposedly where fathers and sons, who's particularly a teenager, can easily talk, and it's the car, because you're looking straight ahead, you're not looking at right at one another. And if you get into a topic that one or the other of you don't want to talk about, the other one turns up the radio. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, uh, that didn't work with my dad when he was driving. I don't, <laughs> that didn't work. Uh, no, road rage is the only thing that. Uh, there were some horrifying stories. Oh, I mean, he's. The, the, I'm telling you, the guy's the real deal. He doesn't mess around. You cut him. You cut him off in the car, and you know he'll tell you what he thinks. And if. If you don't, if you disagree, it's 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 old school straight away. I remember this one uh, scene with, uh, and I was in the car with my father, and he's driving, and I guess he didn't signal, and he cuts some trucker off, and guy beeps his horn and kind of gives my dad the the you know universal symbol for, you know what to do with yourself, and my dad responds with, no, I think you should do this with yourself, and the trucker stops and gets out of the car at the light, and that's I mean that's all my dad needed. The door flies open. It's and it's raining. It's pelting rain down. There. One of the few days it ever rains in Las Vegas. And and uh, he goes up to the trucker. The trucker, remember, throws a punch. I'm looking through the back window. You know, like my dad's about to get killed. You know, and he, my dad just ducks just enough where the where it deflects it off the top of his head and throws a vicious combination with uppercut. And the guy's literally lying on his back in the middle of the road in the rain. And I was convinced the guy was dead. You know, I didn't know. And, and my dad gets back in the car and he's still fighting. He's almost shadow boxing the steering wheels and, and we were picking up my mom for lunch. Because <laughs> my dad used to always pick her up for lunch. She worked during the day and, and, and we're driving and somewhere about you know, a mile or so down the road, he kind of calms down and he kind of checks his hands to make sure there's no evidence of what took place or that his hands aren't broken. And he just kind of, and one of the most tender voices you ever, you ever heard from my father, he would just, uh, one of the few times he'd ever be so gentle, he'd just say, uh, don't tell your mom about this. Your, your mother comes across as a, a very gentle, calm person in your life, which clearly imbued some of that to you. I mean, you have a way of, of, of calming yourself at time. But then there was this access to this rage, this anger. And, and one of the things that, you know, rage and anger are about. I mean, they're often, people think that they're like the, the pure emotion, but they're often the secondary emotion. And it comes from fear or hurt or a combination of them. And that generates the anger. And I realized that in tennis, when, when you or you could see the other player getting angry, is that it would come from fear of what the other opponent would likely be doing to you or that you weren't ready or that your you know, body was going to fail you or hurt that a judge miscalled, made a bad call or, or something, that, but that it became a, a fuel for you. And yet, at times, some of your best tennis playing was done when you were calm and you weren't relying on that anger. Where were you years ago when I... <laughs> uh, 
you know, I, tennis is a very lonely sport. You know, um, you're, it's not like any other sport, um, even boxing, because you have each other. I mean, tennis, you're literally on islands. You can't talk to anybody. You can't hide. You can't put on a helmet. You can't pass the ball. You can't take time out. You don't have to be good. You have to be better than one person. You're always sort of being measured against, against one person. And it's, it's really lonely. You're separated by 76 feet, you know, and, and you know, and uh, proof of that is, is what I always kind of say. And I make reference to it in the book. You know, it's like solitary confinement in prison. You know, you, somebody goes into solitary confinement for a number of weeks and they come out and they're, they're talking to themselves because they just go crazy, right? They just, you have to talk to yourself in solitary confinement. Have you ever seen another sport where people talk to themselves as much as tennis. We talk to ourselves and we answer. That's what we do. It's, it's, uh, we hold Lincoln-Douglas debates in front of the world. It's a very lonely sport, so you, you try to find a lot of tools to help uh, keep your sanity, you know, and you find a lot of different emotions, and sometimes it is anger. Sometimes you can use that. I talk about the summer revenge in 1995 where I used anger to, to go 26-0 and 0 in, 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 in that summer, um, all the while resenting myself for those, for those feelings. But, uh, but, but ultimately, you don't need uh, anger to, 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 be, to direct yourself. You know? I mean, I found a lot of different ways to, to understand myself that ultimately um, was much more uh, productive and and certainly more reflective of who it is that I am. One of, one of the, uh, the statistics are the, are the incredible number of wins that you would have, but there are also the statistics that, I don't know how they're compiled, of, of the losses. And you would cope with the losses in, in, different, in different ways. Sometimes you felt they were deserved, that you just met somebody who was playing better that day. Other times there was some sort of unfairness, exhaustion. Um, you were distracted. I mean, there's a, a quantity of those, too, that you also... Uh, I mean, you must remember those as vividly as the victories. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no question. I mean, um, I have—I don't have a say over the contents of my memory. It's—it's it's times I wish I, I could just kind of forget things. But you know, I, I remember the good. I remember the bad pretty, pretty darn well. And one of the ways I used to cope with losses was setting things on fire. That was a big thing for me. I don't—I go back to the hotel room and I would make a little safe area out there on the deck, and I just. I would burn things, little things, paper, stuff. Just, I just, for some reason, there was an emotion I, t I associated with, with fire. So it, you, you look back and you just, you, re you really start to understand just how deep some of these, some of these feelings went. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was hard living it, and it was really hard reliving it. And so, in the process of reliving it, you know, through this book, you found a collaborator that sounds very much like the role that. Gil has played for you as your trainer, or Brad uh, did in, in helping you change your playing, that, that he was able to help you access these memories and, and sort them out in a way. One of the metaphors in your book is that of the island. An island was not always a good place for you to go, whether it was with uh, a former girlfriend or whether it was the island of tennis, that it felt too isolated for you, trapped, claustrophobic. Yeah, no question about it. You know, I, one of the things that inspired me to do this book was the last few years of my career. I was reading this book, The Tender Bar, uh, by J.R. Moringer, and it really gave me an escape from the emotions that I was going through when you're about to stop doing something you've done your whole life. I mean, picture that. You just, if I told you this is going to be your last interview, you know, it's like you go, well, wait a second, you know, that's, that's just not easy. This is who I am, it's what I do. 
Um, and I read this book and I started to realize the power of somebody's story and started to wonder what my life uh, real power is because people have been inspired from the outside on certain levels. Uh, but I know that I've, I've gone much deeper and much higher than people have ever realized. And, and so I, I wanted to see what my life would really look like through a literary lens. Um, and I reached out to J.R. Moringer, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning author, and, and, uh, and I asked him to, to take on this challenge with me, you know, and to my surprise, he said yes. I mean, at some point, I convinced him that it's a story that needed to be told. Um, and to, to, to just turn that kind of lens. I mean, he studied Freud. We spent hours and hours, you know, just thousands of hours just downloading and understanding the reasons and reconciling the psyche and making sense of the contradictions that exist in my life. And, and, then, and then once we understood it and we felt like we had it, and then to, to, to tell it in such a, in such a powerful way was, uh, was very important to me. I mean, this book, it's written in present tense which was a huge tool. So I, I immediately, am, I can take you into my head and into my experiences and take you through it as I'm, as I'm living it. And uh, nobody's life can fit inside 400 pages, but, um, but my life just was unimaginable how this was going to be organized when you really looked at where I'd been from seven years old to the time I retired. And, and this stream of consciousness that takes place, there's not one single quote in the whole book. Um, it's, uh, it's, it gave us a real tool to, to, to make this book feel like a, like a runaway horse. And, and there, was, there were times where I looked at just what, what a chapter had to encapsulate, and I, I literally thought that's impossible. So he, what he brought to the table as far as decision-making and his organization and to be able to tell this, I don't think it could have been done by anybody else. There was an interview with him in the New York Times uh, a couple of weeks ago about the process, and he said that he had been dubious about it because he thought collaborating with you, he might get 30 hours of your time, and then you'd be off jet-setting somewhere else, and, and he thought it would be terrible. But he said he was stunned by the amount of time that you put together, and he said, and you probably saw this piece, is I wonder what would have happened if Andre Agassi's father had been word-obsessed rather than tennis-obsessed. <laughs> I mean, I think he came away impressed with your ability to plumb yourself and to take the care necessary to write a book that he understood. I mean, it's like you got into the game with him. Well, that was a given, and that just speaks to what he didn't know of me when we started. You know, I mean, I knew what my commitment was. It's, it's too important. Um, and, and the process leads me. You know? It, it, you know, it was never tennis that I chose, but because I was in it, I discovered myself through it. And this was a process I was choosing, but I, it didn't matter what the cost was. It was going to be done right and it was going to be done unique, and it was going to be done powerfully, and it was, I, I, I knew all that. I mean, I think JR had to be convinced, because I think he's heard some horror stories with, with athletes who have taken on this particular, particular challenge, but it was, uh, it was endless. We went through about nine drafts together. Uh, we labored over, over every, every single word, um, and, um, you know, uh, yeah. So, so in discussing the, the, uh, the island metaphor, I mean, how did that conversation come up? I mean, islands show up a lot. Islands, you know, is a, is a, is a place to escape to for a, a romantic getaway that may or may not be romantic. The islands of isolation. England, you thought England was okay, then you realize England was an island. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's just so many literary components of this, so many pieces that I recognized, uh, some of which, most of which came through JR. Um, you know, islands was one. I mean, when you look at uh, the, the fairy tale of, of the dragon and how Gil... 
told me, he, I, I remind him of Lancelot, and I'm asking him, well, does, well, who's Lancelot? He says, well, it's, he's a knight, and I'm like, well, do knights kill dragons? You know, I mean, there's so many different uh, metaphors of, of, of how it all kind of comes together, but islands is a, is a popular theme in, in my book, because I think we're all, we're all alone. I mean, you know, we're all ultimately alone. Uh, we're all better off standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody and, and fighting through our own pain, and when we can, helping the pains of others uh, but but ultimately we're alone and that's what we're all trying to figure out and 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 be there for so you know tennis you're on an island I mean many of my vacations in my um, you know uh, first marriage that was sort of doomed from the start um, were, were, were taken on, on islands and 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 it kind of came occurred to me at some point that me and my um, my first wife are are are, are on islands, you know, we just have no ability to understand the other ones. No way to make a bridge between them. Yeah, no, um, we certainly uh, didn't didn't figure that out. But I'm not sure I could have figured that out with anybody at that stage in my life, you know. Well, that's what I meant about the idea of sort of having this sort of numbness and not the feelings, because you were, at the time when you were there on your knees proposing on the beautiful sand beach to Brooke Shields, you know, what, uh, you know, which for many people would be you know, something they would they could fantasize about. But for you, you were going, wait, wait, this doesn't feel right. But in a way, you weren't allowing yourself to trust that feeling. You were like caught on that conveyor belt in some way. This is something I should be doing. Well, yeah, there's no question. She was saying, yes, yes, yes. And I was saying, wait, wait, wait. I mean, you know, it's a weird, it's, 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 un, it's unreal to look back and see it that way. But when you don't, you know, for anything to really work, any relationship, you need two people who really understand themselves. Else... Else, if you don't know yourself deeply, I mean, how is it possible that you can, you know, together work towards this this goal of of of, of a life, you know? And and I didn't know myself. Um, you know, I was very familiar with doing things that I thought I should do, that um, that I wasn't um, that wasn't my real really my choice. So I was very familiar with the feeling of being unsure and doing it anyhow, not being connected and doing it anyhow. And I had this. A series of relationships where at two years they would just come to this dreadful end, you know, and, and I always blame myself for that. It's like I just, this fear of commitment, this fear of, of just moving forward, and maybe it's not about it being easy. Maybe it's about, like everything else, like my tennis, maybe it's about just doing it. And, you know, so I was at that two-year point. You're also and still like, in your 20s. And, and like you said, it was Brooke Shields, right? So, I mean, can't all be bad, right? <laughs> Um, so, you know, I'm still 20, 26, 27 years old and, and I'm, uh, you know, and I, and I, I went with it and, uh, made, um, you know, wrong decision for both of us. The, but in, uh, but in the way, I mean, you know, as, as, you know, you comment about the idea of the, the journeys in our lives, it eventually led you to Stephanie Graff and a lovely sort of courtship that you, you did of her, um, and, one of the one of the interesting things which you first connected on was uh, uh, the movie Shadowlands, based on the C.S. Lewis story. I mean, which you found was each your own favorite film. Yeah, we shared that. We shared that in common. Uh, I mean, Shadowlands was a powerful, powerful movie, and C.S. Lewis is, you know, one of my favorite, you know, authors. But uh, you know, that story resonated with us. You know, you know, that God wants us to grow up. You know, the 
Um, the pain in our life is, is, is the, you know, pain is God's megaphone to wake a, a, a deaf world, to wake a sleeping world. You know, it's like, you know, there's just so many parts that we identify with. One of, you know, I think we have similar backgrounds, my, my wife and I. I think we come from similar pressures. Um, and, and as a result, I think we respond emotionally to similar things. And we've also built a muscle that we use quite effectively with each other when it comes to how we care and, and how we empathize. And uh, right from the word go, we had, uh, we had many of the right things in common and we're completely opposite in many of the right things too, which is, um, which is good news for both of us. Do you play tennis together? Uh, we do, yeah. We do, uh, not very often, but when we're preparing for something or, or, or she wants exercise, I make, it's a simple rule I have if I play tennis, I'm not gonna run, so hit the ball back to me and I'm fine. And, and you make her run? Yeah, well, and she's a complete opposite. She doesn't wanna go play unless she's gonna run. So th there you go, it's perfect. perfect. Hit, hit the ball back to me, I make you. should just keep the score love, love all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's right, it's hard, to, it's hard to avoid that with her. Yeah. The, uh, this, this book, I mean, there's been talk about, uh, you know, the, the friendships, uh, the drugs, and everybody has covered that in other interviews, and I, I don't want to go, go, I think there are other interesting things in this book to talk about. One of them is that you went through this process, as the book calls, is of, of open, of sort of confronting these, um, these, these issues in your life, and I wondered if there might be a sequel that you could do that talks about the that particular process, uh, you could call it reopen, and <laughs> you know, and, and how this book has changed because in, in many ways you've you've um, you've said to the world, uh, this is how I've grown up. Part of part of the Andre Agassi that you knew wasn't who you thought he was. I had to go and dissimulate to the world. I had to be an actor, um, but now this is who I am, uh, and. That process that you went through to, with with your your co-writer uh, Jr. sounds just like, you know, some of the most intense therapy that you could do. It was like 20 years of therapy in, in three years, but it was actually a typo in the book. It was a typo. I didn't say I did meth in '97. I said I, I wanted to say I did math in 1997. <laughs> so, so I don't know what all the fuss is about, but. Um, <laughs> uh, but then again, nobody would ever believe I did math in '97. So I'm not. So I guess it's all. The um, uh, there was there was an aspect. I was I was watching my my uh, my son Samuel play tennis the other day, and he was doing this little tournament. And it was just you know sort of something to do, and I watched him playing a kid, and the kid that he was playing said the ball was out. And I thought that ball wasn't out. That was in, you know, and in. In your book, I realized that in junior's play, you can call a ball out even if it's in, and you lost a terrible, you, you lost a match to somebody, I think, I don't know if, how old you were, eight, nine, 10, 12, uh, to the, was it a man named Tarango? Yeah, yeah. And because the ball was in, uh, and he decided to call it out, and it changed the course of the game. And that grudge was with you for like 20 years. No, no, it's still going. Oh, it's still going? Yeah, it's still going. <laughs> Yeah, no, <laughs> no, please, I mean, this, yes. But I thought, what an amazing rule that you can just decide, no, that ball was out and, uh, and invalidate an entire game. Yeah, well, well it, was, uh, it was my first loss ever. I, I was seven years old, I won my first seven tournaments. I was like eight years old, now I'm playing in, the, in, this, in this match and uh, we get to a tie break in the third set. It was back in the old days of 
nine-point tiebreakers. First one to five win by one point sudden death at four all. So you are doing math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I do geometry, too, on the court a lot, but it's all about that. Unfortunately, you have to learn those the hard way. Um, but for all, it's match point for both of us. We have this long rally, and I absolutely cane a backhand cross court, a cold winner that lands in the middle of the court, three feet by three feet from every line. <laughs> I throw my hands up, you know, in triumph. He starts crying. And he walks to the net, and he's crying walking to the net. And then he gets all the way to the net, and he's about to shake hands, and he looks back, and he goes, out. <laughs> and then he throws his hands up, and I start crying. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, you know, it, it left a mark on me, and, and, uh, and uh, Jeff Tarango should, uh, should know that. It, throughout throughout your your career, I was struck by the number of people that you had met at tennis camp as a as a as a young teenager, who you would regularly meet on the tour. There were, there were people that you would regularly tour with that you'd known for years, and you'd play you'd play them again and again. Oh yeah, no, it's just uh, the places stayed the same. Occasionally, the faces changed, uh, but the scores always changed. That's pretty much was tennis from a little boy. I mean. You know, uh, Michael Chang I grew up with, uh, Pete I grew up with, Jim Currier I grew up with. We went to the academy, I was at the academy with Currier and, you know, David Wheat and many of these guys that end up, I end up facing in matches down the road and then you're on the tour, you know, uh, year after year competing against each other in big, in big arenas. I mean, you, you get to know the fabric of somebody on a certain level, you know, with how they conduct themselves in the heat of the, that kind of, that kind of uh, a battle, but it's amazing to, to grow up with the same people for that kind of time and, and those kind of intensities. And you would go out to dinner with them and then a day or two later you would fight them as fiercely as you could. Well, I, w I never really did that. I mean, um, you know, um, especially with Chang. Um, oh, Pete Sampras, you'd, you'd no. go out. No, I never went out to dinner with Pete either. I mean... Um, <laughs> Was it drinking you with him? No, what was? Oh, I know what you're referring to. Oh, he's referring to this story. So I'm at dinner one one time. <laughs> okay, Pete and I always give each other a hard time. So I, I had to I had to actually put this one in black and white. So we're I'm at dinner one time in um, in Palm Springs and and Pete's there and he comes over and says hello and the whole deal and we're sitting right by the window where, you know the the valet parkers are and stuff and I see Pete roll in with his Mercedes, his whole deal, whatever, and he parks the car and gets out, comes in, says hello, sits down, and Pete was always quick. He just, he would order pasta, that's it, he'd kill it, and he'd go home. You know, meanwhile, I'm, you know, having a glass of wine, and I'm trying to work into my evening a little bit, and, and, uh, and he starts to walk out, and Brad and I uh, were there, among other witnesses, in case Pete denies this, um, and, and Brad says to me, how much do you think he's going to tip the valet? And I go, oh, I mean, he's got to give him like a 20 spot, right? I mean, the dude's won 40 million in prize money. He goes, no, no. I say he gives him five or less. And I go, impossible, impossible. So we're looking out the window, you know, <laughs> having, having dinner. And we just stop. And we walk Pete. And we see, and he pulls out a bill, and he gives it. And so we can't make out what the bill is. But we know it's like just one bill. It wasn't like a few bills. So we're going, okay, that's... That's a 10 or 20. I win this bet for sure. I mean, that's got I mean, it was one bill. So he takes off. We walk out. I go up to the valet guy. Okay, you got to just, we, you got to come clean. W what did he give you? And the guy goes, well, I'm not, listen, we have a bet on this. You, you got to tell me what he gave you. He goes, he gave me a, a dollar. <laughs> and, 
And so we immediately put our hand over our, our hearts. We're like, that's impossible. And he goes, no, that's not the worst of it. He told me to give the dollar to the guy that hustled to get his car. Like, give this dollar to the other guy. Now, having been raised in a, in a world which oh, your father... Don't let that go. Let's, let's stay on that for a minute. <laughs> That's good stuff right there. I wasn't going to let it go. <laughs> but, you know, on behalf of Pete's defense, I do celebrate him kicking my butt that, that in the, about a page later. And, uh, no, but we do give each other a hard time. If he's not imitating the way I walk, he's talking about all the times he's beating me in big matches. So he, he has that one coming. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing, the thing that was, was, was clear is that because you were raised by a dad who earned a lot of money from tips, it would be something you'd also be keenly aware of. Uh, yeah, well, our life depended on, on tips. So, I mean, I'm, I, I think I've been unreasonable probably in, my, in how I've gone about it. But my father was the kind of guy that would go to a, a diner and he, he just for a cup of coffee and, and he just, he would, he would tip, he would leave $5, he would just tip, he just would give it because uh, every time somebody gave to him, it made a huge difference to us. The, uh, the book opens with a chapter called The End, which, which I think you know, can easily be a standalone in any anthology of great sports writing. You know, the match and, and how you and your competitor um, end up in the locker room kind of exhausted and, and spent um, at the end. I mean, it's really a, uh, a splendid tale. The other theme that we haven't gotten into here but is very moving in the book is that of the relationship with your brother and how you were starting out and worked together and you know, had to eat, subsist three meals a day on lentils and potatoes and, you know, uh, and, and the way the two of you worked both together on your behalf and, and also in defense against the father and uh, it's a very moving story with your brother. No question. Why are you dog-earing my book there? <laughs> you don't do that to... Not, not, not only dog-earing it, but marking it up with little oh. sections instead of, see? Uh, this, this is a working tool for okay, me. Fair enough. It's, 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 like, it's like you travel with you know, a stack of rackets. He, he once went in when he was really feeling discouraged about tennis. He goes into a Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. and gives away these hundreds of dollars worth of rackets to the homeless. I don't know what they did with them, but... You know. It was, yeah, I mean, they thought it was Christmas. I mean, yeah. 100 degrees outside, but it was Christmas as far as they were concerned. Um, you know, my brother was very instrumental in my life. I mean, he's seven years older, and he lived the... The dramas was my dad, and, and, and you know, my dad had no psychology to him. He just was a rough, straight-talking person. He always knew where he stood. Um, he respected it on some level, but there wasn't a whole lot of psychology. When he knew you were hurt, he could turn on a dime because he, he, he had that love, but he never really knew you were hurt because he wouldn't understand why you would be hurt at something like that, you know. Um, and my f brother would help explain my father to me quite often and and help steer me through some of those trappings you know uh, um, and and as a result of that I think I found myself uh, being able to keep at bay some of those I, I never internalized with my brother you know everybody else in the family everybody else around me I would just internalize and that time alone with my brother at night in, in our in our in our bedroom and we put a white line between us because we both had different standards on how we kept our sides of the room and he was much neater than I was but uh um, but we would sit across this line, almost like a tennis court, almost like the ad court and deuce court, and we'd have this, these conversations, like the ball going back and forth with, with pops and, and just trying to make sense of a lot of things. In those moments, they left an, an indelible mark on my mind, and uh, one, of, one of the forms that those conversations would take place is my, my brother lost his hair at a pretty early age, or certainly was losing it during this time, and 
um, and he was convinced it wasn't the, he heard it was just a blood flow issue to your, your head. So every night for 10 minutes, he would stand on his head, you know, <laughs> hoping that the blood flow would, would. And I remember I just used to pray that, I mean, please, you know, just please make this work. I mean, losing his hair would terrorized him. And, um, and, then, uh, and then I had to go through it. And, and then I did what any noble. And most amusingly, too, as you recounted. Well, I did, the, I did you know, the noble th uh, thing that most noble people would do. And as I lost my, I just wore a wig. So it was right. perfect. I was done with that problem. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but no. So you never forget a guy who patted you on the head at, at, after he beat you or something. Yeah, Thomas Mooster. Yeah, who must your hair. Yeah, don't ever touch the hair. <laughs> he, he, he patted me on the head, and, uh, and I proceeded just involuntarily to communicate to him that I will never lose to him again. Um, and I actually held true that promise. It's a good thing I never played him on clay again, but it's, it's but yeah. No, my brother was very instrumental in me uh, making sense of myself, uh, keeping, things, keeping things the right direction. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating account of, of a life, of, and, and really, although there's a, a tremendous amount about tennis in here, there's a great deal about friendship and love. And uh, thank you, Andre Agassi. Pleasure, thank you. Andre Agassi. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.